Welcome to Adulting, the podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv. Welcome to Adulting. Uh, I'm here with Miranda, and our guest today is Beth Kobliner. Uh, Welcome to the show, Beth. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. We really appreciate you being here, and we're, we're happy to uh, talk to you about your the new revision to your book, Get a Financial Life, which which has been updated for millennials. Now, why, has, why, why is this necessary? Why do millennials need a new edition of this book? Right. Well, I think, first off, uh, when thinking about the challenges generations face, I feel that people in their 20s today and 30s are really, you know, facing some difficult challenges uh, with higher student debt loads and more of a uncertain job market and the economy all over the place. I feel like it's tough, but I also think there's some things that they're doing quite well. Um, so, I realized it was really time to make it specific to this generation and ways they can get a financial life. And you have a personal story, right, about how you got into this as well, right? Right, <laughs> Can right. you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, I've been writing about personal finance and money matters for about 30 years, but one thing that I realized uh, a few years ago is the importance of saving for retirement. And I've written about that and talked about it. But when I was in my early 20s and I got my first job, I if I would have put away just $1,000 a year, which is basically $19 a week in a retirement fund, um, in addition to whatever savings I have, you know, that I was doing at the time, I would have probably had about $150,000 more now than I do. In other words, that ability and that, you know, taking advantage of saving at an early age in a tax-favored plan like a 401k or an IRA is really, really important because you get you know, it's been called the eighth wonder of the world, tax-free compound growth. And when money grows in these plans, you it grows exponentially quickly. And if you miss out in your 20s, you can't make up for it in your 30s and 40s and so on. So it's really important to start saving. And just thinking back to my own example, I was even writing about personal finance at the time. I can't stress enough, or maybe I can, that it's really important to start in these plans when you're young. Yeah, for sure. And you've, we've done those, you know, you, we've all seen those articles where they run the numbers. And <laughs> if you start, if you start five years earlier, 10 years earlier, um, you, you only have to save half as much each month. Exactly. So instead of, yeah, so instead of like having to save like $800 a month <laughs> to make it work, you know, when you hit your late thirties, you start in your, you know, you start in your mid twenties and, and maybe you only have to set aside, you know, uh, $300 a month to hit your retirement goals. So it, it really does make a difference to start because that opportunity cost, once it's gone, uh, you can't make up for it. You, you can't make up for that time. Exactly. 
And I think that um, we, I think one thing that's very positive about this generation is more people in their 20s and 30s are saving in plans like 401k plans at work or IRAs than previous generations did when they were in their 20s. So that's great news. One sort of negative though is using these plans more like a credit card or more like an ATM really, a cash machine by people are borrowing against these plans more. So that's not a good idea. Um, I just heard a statistic that people born today will live much longer. I heard as much as they'll live to, I I mean, sorry, I should probably stop because I don't know if it's right, but they might live, they're going to live to 100, the average age, people who are born today. But we do know people are living much, much longer and that those years of, you know, needing to provide for yourself and hopefully enjoy some of those years and have the financial freedom to do what you want. It's so important what you do today. And it's difficult because obviously when you're younger, your paychecks tend to be lower, but forcing yourself to act, to put away, if it's 10% of your income, 15% of your income down the road, you will be so grateful that you did it. What are some of the ways that we can force ourselves to do this. I mean, listening to your story, thinking back to my situation when I was out of college, working for a nonprofit, the the idea of saving $17 a week in some other financial account that wasn't going towards food or rent or transportation to my job just seemed totally out of, you know, out of, it's an idea that came from, you know, outer space or something. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around that at that time. Well, The way to do it is to not do it, not to do it mindfully, but have somebody do it for you. Whether it's, again, a 401k at work, or it's uh, an index fund uh, at a company like Vanguard or Schwab, which have much lower fees, or it's even a bank savings account. You can have the money automatically taken out of your paycheck before you get it. And by doing that, you're forcing yourself to live on a lower income. And and if your first year you say, you know what, I just can't do this. Well, then say to yourself, okay, next year, if I get a little bit of a raise, I'm going to make sure to put at very least that into a retirement account. Or, you know, there, there are trade-offs. I think that if it's, you know, $17 a week or $19 a week so- can sound like a lot if you feel like you're living to paycheck from paycheck to paycheck. But on the other hand, it comes to if you're, you know, if there's one thing you can do that week and you can change it every week, is it that, you know what, this week I won't go out with friends order or order in, but we'll make, you know, go to the grocery and make the food ourselves. And that's going to be my month of saving. I know um, actually uh, someone in her 20s who did this experiment. And I think it's something that happens a lot where she didn't eat out for a month. She gave herself a month of just buying food at a grocery and preparing it and bringing. And she saved, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So I think you don't want to live your life only thinking about the future. That can be really tough. But I do think it's those small, um, sometimes 
imperceptible differences that we can make in trade-offs in our daily life or weekly life that can really have an impact down the road. And I think it comes down to the question of what are you willing to do this week to ensure that you'll have $150,000 down the road? So is it worth it to be $150,000 more secure? And I think when it comes to money, it's not just about having the cash or the money down the road, but it's the holistic financial feeling of knowing uh, you're secure and you're, um, uh, it'll be a calmer life. Because really, I think money is the number one stressor in most people's lives in their 40s and 50s and even in their 20s. So I think that I meet so many people in their 40s who say to me, you know, I wish I had that book when I was in my 20s and or 30s. And I feel like that is the time when these trade-offs are important. And once you do it and have it done automatically, I think it makes a real difference. Yeah. And I was going to say that it seems that as you said, one of the positives is that uh, people in their 20s and 30s are saving more for retirement through 401ks. They're participating in 401ks and IRAs more often. But but at the same time, there seems to be a, a general distrust of the financial industry. And whether that's coming from having you know kind of grown up in the era of the, right. the recession and, and all the right. struggles. Yeah. yeah. So how do you yeah, how do how do you deal with that distrust but still need the financial industry to survive and thrive right. for the future? That's a great question. I think part of it has to do with looking at which institutions are ripping you off and which aren't. I mean, and I think that um over time, for example, this investment company called Vanguard, and I don't work for any of these companies, I don't get you know, payoffs from any of them. They're just a company that was founded on the idea of having very, very low expenses to investors and keeping it. It's like the, you know, H&M of the financial industry or the bargain, you know, way to get something for less money. Um, and they have, they were founded by this guy, John Bogle, who was just a maverick, like in that in, in starting out in the financial industry. And he's like, I want to democratize this. He's just a very cool guy. And that's a company that I feel like historically has always been geared toward helping smaller investors, people start, start out. And so that's something that you may not know in your twenties and thirties, but if you ask around or do the research or read, get a financial life, that will hopefully give you a, a more of a sense of what each company was founded on. Whereas, you know, there are plenty of banks and brokerage firms that are not about minimizing fees. They charge excessive fees. And those are definitely the ones you should avoid. And the good news is you can avoid them now. There are online banks that you know, waive fees or have slightly higher interest rates or credit unions, which most people can find some affiliation with a credit union to join one. And they have, again, historically, because they're not for profit and they're a collective, they tend to have lower um, fees and pay slightly higher interest rates than banks. So I do think there are a number of smart ways um, to 
not, you can't really opt out completely of the financial um, world if you want to ensure security down the road. But I do think you should be able to pick and choose wisely to make sure you're maximizing any effort you make for your future. Yeah, and when you say pick and choose wisely, I think that leads to this idea that there are so many Mm -hmm. choices out there now. Uh, How do you make sense of this, the the entire world of of what's being marketed at you and what you find online? I think that personal finance is one of those topics that it actually is pretty straightforward and fairly uncomplicated, but I really do believe that... um, uh, investment companies and banks have profited for many, many, many years by making it more complicated, seem more complicated, so that you need their help and their assistance. And then, you know, also they charge you money. So, I think the main things for younger people are, you know, being smart about your debt and starting to save, particularly in uh, tax-favored plans like 401ks and IRAs. And when I say tax-favored, that means your money can grow year after year after year without you ever having to, without having to pay tax on it. Um, uh, with Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, you're taxed on your money up front, but once you put it in, you don't pay tax on it again. Um, and you can let that money sit there and grow for many, many, many years. And that is very important to start at young ages. Or the other one is investing. Although there are literally thousands of different uh, companies and ways to invest, historically, the best thing historically for the last 30 years has been something called an index fund, that you're putting your money into a simple investment that is not an actively managed fund where somebody's being paid to pick and choose stocks for you, but it just has like an index like the Dow Jones or the S&P 500. It just mirrors stocks in that index. And the thing is that they charge much lower expenses at companies like Vanguard or Schwab for index funds. And the mystery to me now is why anybody would put money in an actively managed fund when on average they do the same as this cheaper index fund. So again, it makes sense to put your money in index funds. It makes sense to make sure to take advantage of 401ks and IRAs, and then to be smart about paying off your debt. And if you do those things, those are really the main things that matter. I think it's very hard to for people of all ages, but particularly young people to navigate this. But I think once you see, oh, it's just these three simple things, it actually, if you start doing it now, it makes such a difference down the road. Yeah, I was just going to say, I love indexing. That's my preferred way to invest. I like it because you don't have to try to beat the market. You don't have to get caught up. am Am I picking the right stock? Did I pick a winner? No. With your indexing, you are like riding the market. So you're keeping pace with it. And the market has yet, the market as a whole, stocks as a whole, have yet to lose at all in any like long term period, any uh, 25 year period. And so being able to take advantage of that and, and ride the wave is important. But right. You did, yeah. But you did mention something about uh, paying paying down debt, and this is a very important thing. Uh, and I think a lot of people put off starting investing in retirement because of their high student mm. loan debt. And so, how do you make that? How do you find that balance? Because a lot of people. Um, 
feel very uncomfortable. I am not one of them. I, I still have, um, oh gosh, like 12 years left on my student loans mm. uh, after my consolidation for 25 years. And I'm just, I'm just keeping it because it's a 1.9% interest rate. So it's very low. Right. So I'm, I'd rather invest, but a lot of people are very uncomfortable with having this debt. And so they want to charge ahead. They want to spend the next 10 years paying off their student loan debt, and then they'll start investing in retirement. And can you speak to that a little bit about, you know, how to feel comfortable starting investing, and where to find that balance? Right. It really is a matter of looking at the numbers. So if you have federal student loans, which is what most people have, uh, that that interest rate right now is about 3.4%. So it's not as good as your 1.9%, but it's still pretty low. And you have to say to yourself, by paying off that debt, I'm saying to myself, I'm going to pay it off. Um, is there a place I can put my money that would do better than 3.4%. Um, and the answer is often over the long term, the answer is yes. If you think about putting your money, first off, if you put into a 401k with matching, if you put in for every dollar you put in, your company will put in a dollar. That's an immediate 100% return on your money. So it's much better to put money into a 401k with matching even if it's just up to the amount the company will match, then paying off your debt more quickly because it's better to get a 100% return or if they put in 50 cents for the dollar, a 50% return than 3.4%. So it's really just looking at it uh, like that. And I think that in some cases, you can make the argument that if you for example, have federal loans, federal student loans, and private student loans, which usually have much higher interest rates. Um, if you can't refinance those private student loans, which is an option for more people, but if you can't, it makes much more sense to pay off. Again, you'd still go with the you know, 100% in the 401k with matching. But if you have a loan that's charging you 18%, it's smarter to pay off the 18% loan much more quickly than the 3.4% federal loan. So you can, I could come up with a scenario that if you spread the term of your federal student out, loan out and you pay a slightly lower amount and use that extra cash to pay off those expensive private student loans at 18%, once you get rid of that 18% debt, then you can go back to paying off the federal student loans more quickly again. So, the answer to the question is you shouldn't put off saving in a tax-favored account because you feel like you're paying off your federal student loans because the interest rate that you're getting by paying off your federal student loans is something you can probably beat over the long term by investing that money. Um, and I think it's really, as my mom used to say, it's like there's no good, there's no point in doing something extreme that you might want to sort of split the difference and put some money into paying off your federal student loans and some money into a long-term retirement plan. And that really is, you know, that moderation, just doing each is much better than just doing one of them. Is there anything to be said for um, adjusting expectations? I, mean, I think 
possibility there's a possibility that people in their 20s and 30s right now want to live the same life they perceive their parents mm. to have lived uh, either at that age or or close to it um when they were growing when when these 20 or 30 year olds were were growing up what how how do you balance some of those expectations with the reality of you know needing to save money in in a different way than perhaps their parents right. did i think each generation has its challenges and and i know there's the comparisons been made but i really feel it so strongly my mom and dad were part of the depression generation so they were both born in 1929 and they were very careful in the way they put the most they could. And my dad was a teacher and they put the most they could into the retirement savings plan. In fact, the first year he put, they were allowed to put 50% of their salary. And that's when my dad was living on a, he was actually a assistant principal salary, which was not very high. And they had three kids and a mortgage in Queens. So they didn't have a lot of money at all. And my mom at the time decided to be a stay-at-home mom. So it was they they had expenses and my mom said we can't afford this and my father said we can't afford not to and they were just we lived our lifestyle in a way that was adjusting to very low costs now i think that there are other challenges for this generation buying a home so they're probably going to buy a home later in fact the average age for a first time home buyer now is 32 whereas it used to be 26 for previous the previous generation. So they will probably get started later, but also when you think about it people are living longer and I also think people's values change. I think the depression generation and today's today people in their 20s and 30s are much more similar in some ways in terms of what they look for in life. And, you know, having grown up in the 80s myself and been in college during the 80s, I think there was more of a materialistic bent. There just was. And I think this generation will probably adjust how, you know, I think already it's adjusted for what they want out of life. More people are doing not for profit work or volunteer work or living, um, looking for freedom eventually uh, to do what they want to do. And with that, there's responsibility that's necessary, but it doesn't match, sorry, it doesn't seem to be a generation that's going to, wow, we're going to make as much money as we possibly can because the goal I think whether it's due to the harsh realities or just a, you know, new zeitgeist of way of looking at things or maybe a little bit of both. I think this generation will, you know, be successful in working toward their goals, but they're probably different goals than maybe their parents' generation or those goals will happen a bit later in life. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like I said, my dad is 87 and I'll sometimes come to book talks with me. And I think uh, I'm the financial journalist. I've been doing this for a long time. And people are <laughs> breathless after he speaks because he'll just give a few examples of what it was like growing up during the depression and then his life going forward. Um, and he was a delayed gratification guy. He was born that way. Like we're going to save up, but you know, I look back at my childhood and it wasn't 
a childhood of deprivation. It was just, you know, my mom was always amazing. She was a super saver and she would only buy things on triple coupon day. And then we got all our plates and dishes and silverware for free with green stamps from the supermarket. You know, there were ways of, you know, doing this that I see replicated today by a whole, you know, younger generation that are really wonderful. And I think, you know, even just, I remember, you know, years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there was all this pressure even to have these fancy weddings or you have to start planning years in advance. And then it's so much more common now to read about how to have a budget wedding, how to turn your wedding into a picnic, you know? And I think in some ways this generation will be wiser and better off because of more awareness of living through the Great Recession and seeing maybe their own families or their family friends or their neighbors losing their homes and what kind of impact that would have on a family. And I think there's a little bit more of a sense of we don't want to do it that way. And I just think the important point is also now that that generation does do the few things they need to do. And it's not easy, but I think that their approach may be in some ways better than previous generations and that they're trying to live the life they want to live and do it in a more measured way. They call it life hacks, like a lot of you know, sorry, I sound really old. Look at skip this part. But I do think that, you know, those kind of tricks and tips that young people are talking about a lot, I think they're really smart and it makes sense to do those things and skip the things you don't really care about so you can do the things you really care about. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I started doing, oh, probably six or seven years ago is really paying attention to, you know, what really matters to me and what's really important to me and viewing my financial, uh, viewing my money as like a resource, like these are financial resources and I can put them into different things and and where do I want to stick them and where are they going to give me the most, you know, benefit and enrichment in my life, whether it's giving to charity, whether it's being able to travel more, whether it's providing opportunities for my son and, and, uh, or, or, you know, whether it's going to the spa and getting a manicure, whatever it is, you know, looking at it in terms of, you know, would, would I rather buy this little, you know, Yuga that I probably won't use very much right. or, or would I rather go get a manicure? Right. Would I, would I rather, you know, buy this massive, you know, I finally, it took me, it took me, um, years of having a so-called small 32 inch TV before I, before TVs finally came down enough in price that I finally went out and bought like a 50 inch. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, now they've got 72 inch TVs and flat screens <laughs> and, and, you know, but it, it took me a long time because every time I looked at that TV, or looked at the prices of the TV. I was like, "That is a three day weekend getaway." Right. <laughs> and, right. And I, I don't care about TV enough. And so I, I really like that idea of saying, "Well, what's important to me? What kind of lifestyle matters to me? What kind of life do I want to live today? And how can I use my uh, financial resources to move that direction?" Right. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think 
the people in the 20s and 30s that I've met are asking those kind of questions. And I mean, we do know from experiments that people say they derive more happiness from paying for experience than for things. So travel is something that younger people are doing much more. And again, those are choices and they're ways to travel expensively and the trace ways to travel inexpensively. And I think, you know, people in their 20s and 30s are really mastering how to get what they want um, without going to credit card debt, because that's a huge difference. Young people today are much less likely to have credit card debt than they are than previous generations. I mean, my generation, when you would walk on a college campus in the 80s and early 90s, there would be credit card companies and banks throughout the campus big tables, and they were handing out Frisbees and free t-shirts, and all you had to do was sign your name and get a credit card, which when you think about it is crazy. Why did we want Frisbees and t-shirts so badly? (laughs) What was the appeal? But somehow, you know, a whole generation of people got credit cards without having jobs, without having any income to speak of, and then the rules changed in 2009. Um, there was a change in the credit card. It was the Card Act from President Obama, and it changed um, the fact that you need to be 21 or show you have an income or have a grown-up or adult co-sign with you before you get a credit card. That plus the experience of living through the Great Recession are two things, I think, that aided young people in not getting sucked into credit card debt. Um, Because in the hierarchy of what to do with your finances, if you're paying 18% on a credit card, you're really just draining your savings. There's no point in that. And I think that kudos to people in their 20s and 30s for not getting into that. And if you are in credit card debt, you should pay it off as quickly as you can, even taking savings uh, in a bank account and using it to pay off debt is a smart thing to do because if you're only earning less than 1%, but you're paying out 18%, you're losing money. It's better to take any savings you have, use it to pay off high rate credit card debt, and you won't earn interest that year, but you'll break even, which is much better than losing money by paying continuing to pay high debts. So that is one example, I think, of a difference between today's generation and previous generations. You guys have been smart for not getting into credit card debt. Is there any concern, do you think, of some of the uh, the advancements made through the CARD Act being uh, pulled back at all by uh, the current administration as they're pulling back other right. regulations? Th- so far, there hasn't been any talk of that. And I think when it comes to financial literacy, for the most part, you know, we don't know, but I think it's been traditionally a fairly bipartisan issue that everyone agrees that younger, it was insane to, well, not everyone, but most people agree it makes, it doesn't make sense to give a credit card to a young person who doesn't have a job or income. And that lasted for years and years and years, but I don't see that rolling back. Um, But I do think some of, you know, I think the student loan debt issue is one that's going to continue. And this generation did have 
take on a lot more student loan debt. So that's something that people have to be careful about paying. And one thing I wanted to say is it's really important to just make your payments. I think that it's good to be strategic and smart about money, but never miss a payment. Because if you miss a payment, even one payment, that ends up going on your credit history and that hurts your credit score. And the next time you go to apply for any kind of loan, whether it's a home loan, a car loan, that will really hurt you. So I think just making sure, ideally, again, automatically paying your bills each month, um, having it done automatically is really helpful so that you're not missing a payment. And that is one advantage, this generation. There's automatic savings and there's automatic bill payment. And automation in that sense has been extremely helpful when it comes to overriding our natural inclinations to either spend money and not save it or to spend more than we have if, you know, on a credit card. So I think making sure to put in place um, automation when it makes the most sense is, is a benefit that this generation has. I'm glad that you brought up uh, credit history mm. and credit scores. And, and I was wondering whether it's still a good idea as a young person to sign up for a credit card, even if you're co-signing on it, to get started in some kind of credit history to prepare you for something right. down the road. So, um, the answer is no. You don't need to get a credit card to have a credit score and a credit history. If you have student loans and you're paying off them off regularly and on time, that's great for your credit score. There probably will come a time that you want a credit card, whether it's for emergencies or there are a few times when you may need a credit card. But I think using it and being clear only to use it as a convenience. You know, I'm going to put my, you know, 50-inch TV on a credit card, but I'm going to pay it off because I have the money at hand. I'm going to pay it off immediately in full. You know, as soon as, you know, I get my bill, I just pay it right off. It's That's really, really important. I do think it's interesting. I'm hearing parents of people in their 20s and 30s say, kids will say to me, people in their 20s and 30s will say to me, my parents said, I really should get a credit card now because I won't be able to get a credit card later. And that was the case years ago. And that's not the case now. As long as you have a good record of regularly paying, whether it's your um, student loan or maybe an auto loan, you'll get a credit card. That isn't a problem. When it comes to co-signing a credit card, I usually warn parents not to do that because, and I think a younger person, having your parent co-sign your credit card, A, it may not always build up your credit score as you think it would. In other words, getting a credit card on your own um, makes a lot more sense and will be certainly counted toward a positive if you pay on time for your credit score. But I just think getting a credit card and knowing you have a parent to pay the bill or be responsible for it, one, if you mess up, it'll not only hurt you, but it'll go on your parents' credit record. Um, and that's a guilt nobody wants to live with. 
And also, <laughs> I think that um, your parents will be financially responsible for that, which is, again, something else that you really don't want to happen. Wait until you have that first job or, or have some income. And I wouldn't get a, I would not get a credit card freshman, sophomore year in college, maybe when you're, you know, out working, then you can get a credit card and only use it as a convenience that you don't want to lug around a hundred dollars or hundreds of dollars to buy something, um, but pay it off in full when the bill comes. There are a lot of companies out there now that advertise getting your credit score for free. Uh, are these? Is, is it worthwhile to get one of these free scores? Is it going to actually give you an idea of where you stand with your credit, or should we? You know, is is there a certain score that we need right. to look for? Well, uh, CreditKarma.com is actually one of the good ones. Um, they've been around for a while, and they offer a, a free credit score. Now, it's not your exact FICO score, which is the official score, but it's a pretty good you know, proximity to what your score is. So, it's a good measure. And you want a credit card, you want a credit score of in the 700s, right? You want a credit score in the 700s because that will allow you to get, you know, the better rates on auto loans, uh, credit cards, and one-day mortgages. Um, and you don't want to check your credit score daily though, because doing a lot of checking of your credit score can also cause your credit score to dip, um, because, um, it may be seen by lenders as, wow, this person really needs credit. What's going on? So, you know, there are a bunch of different, um, rules of building your credit and making sure it looks good. But the most important, by far, the biggest factor is paying your bills on time. So, as you talked about qualifying for a better mortgage rate, are, how, how are we doing? How are millennials doing with, with, the, uh, with their mm. home buying? Is that something that's even important to them? Seems like there's a lot of renters yeah, out there. Yeah, there are a lot of renters. Rent, rent has been really high because of that. This generation is mostly having the trouble coming up with the down payment. And there are two reasons for that. One reason is that during the Great Recession, uh, people were getting into homes and, you know, years, a few years before that, getting into home, no money down, meaning you didn't have to even put a down payment to get into a home. So what would happen is people would buy a home, have it completely, um, in the form of a loan, you know, it's financed by the bank. And then they were hoping home prices would rise and they would even, you know, sell the home and make a profit. But as we know, home prices didn't rise and people were strapped and couldn't make those monthly payments. So people in their 20s and 30s today are having to put down the more traditional 20% down in order to buy a home. But it's much harder, you know, it's a $100,000 home or, you know, you're talking about $20,000 and you could do the math from there, you know, multiply it. And I think that that has been the big, one of the big struggles for this generation, because if you're paying down student loans and you're putting money into the 401k with matching, how do you have money left over to save for that down payment? But I also think that 
it's okay to rent. If you're going to live in a place, say for three to five years, and you don't think you're going to be living there longer than that, renting is fine. And, you know, hopefully as time goes on and your income goes up and you're getting closer to paying off that student loan eventually, then a chunk of that money will go towards saving up that down payment. Um, I think it's, it is difficult though. Um, and as that generation is having a harder time coming up with down payments, um, there'll probably be a time when home prices go down if there's less of a demand for homes. But right now, those first-time homes are very expensive, and it is a real challenge and very difficult for young people to save up that down payment. There are, though, one, one thing to consider uh, if you uh, can get an FHA loan. Um, that's still around, and there are, you know, somewhat easier down payment levels, but, you know, also lenders will be looking at your credit score and credit history much more carefully again than the, you know, 10 years ago. And frankly, it's a good thing. I mean, it, it makes it more difficult to get into home, but it also ensures at least for the most part that people aren't going to get into homes that they just, there's no chance they can afford, which is what happened during the recession. Sure. And I remember interest-only loans right. where uh, certainly saved a lot of money on a monthly basis, but then those were the first to really have trouble once the, once the exactly. market crashed. Exactly. Balloon mortgages, that you're only paying that interest payment. It feels great. Oh, I have this low monthly payment. But then when you start paying the principal, the original amount you borrowed, that's when it gets, you know, it balloons and you're really stuck. And unless you've gotten a huge raise or suddenly able to, to afford it, the home becomes unaffordable. And how does one qualify for one of those FHA mortgages? Um, well, there's actually... Do you want me to help out with this? Yeah. Yeah. No, you could go. To, I, I actually, I have it right here and I just yeah. had a mine melt. But uh, you could start talking about, do you, do you have an FHA loan? Um, I actually, well, I don't right now, but I, when I bought my house in 2007, mm. I did so with an FHA loan. Uh, back then the down payment was, uh, lower, uh, right. but today you can get one for as low as 3.5%. As long as you have a credit score of at least 580, you can qualify for that lower down payment. And the FHA program will actually take people with credit scores as low as 500, mm. but you, but you need to, but you need to make a bigger down payment in order, uh, to get those lower. Uh, score. And, and it's important to note that just because you can qualify for this FHA loan with a like 620 more uh, 620 credit mm, score mm -hmm. or 580 credit score, uh, you're still going to pay a high interest rate. So um, at the time I got my uh, FHA loan, I had excellent credit. We were able to get the best market rate available for our mortgage mm. and, and it worked out really well. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, um, you no, know, that's make a sure great you run point. the numbers. Right. Make I sure mean, you run the numbers. Right. There there are no limits for income on FHA borrowers. Um, and you can get a loan of up to six hundred twenty-five thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah, it depends on where you're at because they do it based on your uh, local 
market. And so like in, in the market where I live, the cap is much lower, like in the 200,000s. For the amount. So, oh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah, federal so, limit. So that's a good point. Yeah. But it's so interesting. The, yeah. Right, there so, no- so it's going to depend on where you live as to where your upper loan limit is going to be. And then it also has to be on um, a dwelling that has no more than like four units. So you could get like a single home, a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex mm. um, and do this. And and that's one of the cool things is, uh, and we talked to um, somebody in the past about this as well, is, you know, you buy a fourplex or a duplex with your FHA loan and your low down payment, you live in one one unit mm. and rent out the rest of them. Right. <laughs> so that could be really smart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and there are the sort of stresses and strains that come with being a landlord and, you know, managing that. But I think that right. really is a great point. Um, and right. Uh, the FHA loans, you have to buy that federal mortgage insurance. So that's what also boosts the cost to you. So you said it exactly right. If you, um, want to pay a little more an inch or pay quite a bit more. If you really, really, really want to get into a home, it's worth considering, but you're, but it will be cheaper for you if you're able to save more of the down payment and get more of a traditional mortgage. So, um, I think there are trade-offs, uh, but, um, I think if somebody is really eager to buy, there are ways to at least investigate. And one of those would be looking into FHA loans. All right. Well, this is fantastic. Uh, Beth, thank you for joining us today. This has been amazing for, for all of our uh, millennial great, listeners. Great. You guys are great. This is really, really fun. I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, could you just tell us again where we can find your your latest books and any other information? Sure. On you? Um, my website is um, bethkobliner.com and the book, Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s, is available at local independent bookstores uh, as well as amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Great. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. And Beth, I I hope you come back again soon. I will. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Adulting. This is Harlan and Miranda. Uh, We'll be back next week. And if you have any questions you'd like to hear answered on our podcast, go to adulting.tv slash ask. And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and iTunes, adulting.tv slash iTunes. Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv.